okay. I'm glad you're here. And uh, I feel uh, very energized. We're, 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 we just uh, read uh, Parshas Breshis, the beginning of the Torah. We just started the Torah. And let it be clear to everyone that the book that we're reading right now, the Torah that we're reading right now, is not the Torah that we just finished reading. In other words, we're starting again, but we're starting an entirely new book again. And if you say to me that, well, wait a second, all the letters are in the same sequence as they were before, it's the same, I can prove it to you, it's the same book that we're reading, it's the same, same Torah scroll that we're taking out of the, uh, out of the ark, I'll tell you, it, it's not the case. It's a completely different Torah. It's a brand new Torah. So, so what do we mean by that? I can take you back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. So, so it's a brand new book, and it's a brand new Torah, and uh, you know, it's it's something that that I always go back to because I, I think it's so deep, really, and so so important. The Torah ends with this idea that, that, that Moshe Rabbeinu had done something that was wondrous in the eyes of all of Israel. And if you look at the, 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 the commentaries, even though it doesn't say it explicitly in the, um, in the Torah scroll itself, what is this wondrous act that Moshe did? It says that he broke the luchos, he broke the tablets. So, if you think about it, this is an, an event, breaking the tablets that happened, you know, like in, in Parsha Shmos, in the book of Exodus. And yet this is the, the very point that the Torah ends on. This wondrous thing that Moshe did in the eyes of all of Israel. He broke the tablets, he smashed the luchos. That's, that's how you want to end the, 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 the five books? With, with a, with, on some level, a, a, a total, complete low point of the Jewish people? It sounds very strange. Especially since we have a, a rule, and you see it especially with the, um, with the Haftorahs, which is that we always end on a happy note. And, and sometimes if the Haftorah, you know, which is culled from the prophets, if it ends on a negative note, they'll go back to an earlier, happier note, and then they'll go back to that, and that will be the official end of what we read. We always want to end on a positive note. So it, the question becomes larger. Why is it that we're talking about at the very end of the Torah, Moshe smashing the tablets? And I think that the answer is, is how, we started, uh, how we started today. Is that don't think for a second that the Torah that you're reading now is the same Torah that you just read before. In other words, take all of your preconceptions about what the Torah is and just smash them, you know, and then begin, begin again anew. And that's, um, that's sort of the introduction to the reading of the Torah. Now, now, there's something that I'd like to discuss, which is a question that I've been sort of um, wrestling with. And, and, you know, there's certain questions that you hit on in life. And uh, you wrestle with them your whole life because the question is so compelling to you. And you just come up with um, sequences of answers and sequences of answers. 
So I'd like to present to you the question and my answer as of now. You know, I'll just tell you as, a, uh, as an aside, um, when I was growing up, my, my, my friends had a, uh, a, a friend who was an artist. His name was Rico McKeska. And even though he sort of was part of the art circles of, I mean, in, in the loosest sense, but in a, in a real sense of like Picasso and everything like that, he never had the worldwide breakthrough or recognition that, that, that people of, of that caliber had. Nonetheless, he was, you know, he was a modern artist and, and everything like this. And, um, and he was a friend of our family's. Actually, I'll tell you something very, very cool, which is that he, he married a woman, Greta, and when I was a little boy, I knew them. And Greta Mikeska, um, she grew up in Prague, the, the child of very, very wealthy uh, Jewish parents um, in, in, in Prague, in, in Czechoslovakia. And who was her next-door neighbor was Franz Kafka. Yeah, because when I was very young, she was already very, very old. And, um, and Franz Kafka and his best friend Max Brod, those of you who are sort of literary enthusiasts will know that name also, he was also the executor of Kafka's estate. And Kafka actually, if, if I'm not mistaken, asked him to burn all of his writings. And Max Brod made the decision not to burn his writings, which is why we know Kafka's work today. So, so, you know, Kafka is sort of famously represented as sort of like this alienated person who was, you know, sort of outside of all these social circles. And yet, as a young girl, he was already older, as a young girl, she said that all the girls in the neighborhood had crushes on him, you know, which is, I think, great, you know, because this is a first person, this is a first person witness, you know, and, and this is a piece of information. I haven't really read any biographies of Kafka, but I, I don't know that that's necessarily his, how he's generally perceived. Anyway, she said that, that uh, Max Broad gave her and her sisters classes in Plato's Republic and like, really, really educated them. And they had this salon, you know, this, um, you know, this um, sort of regular meeting of intellectuals from Prague in their, in their living room, in their home. So, so anyway, a very interesting family. I'm happy to have, uh, you know, kind of intersected with them. Um, anyway, like I said, I was a child and they were, you know, they were elderly at this point. But um, Rico uh, painted my father uh, a couple of times, portraits of my father. And, um, and he, he, he shared this with my dad, and my dad shared this with me. Or maybe this was my dad's insight. But Rico would wrestle over these paintings, and he had tremendous trouble finishing these paintings. <clears throat> and... Um, my father said that the difference between some artists um, and other artists is that some artists will just make their painting and then they'll sign it and they'll put on a date. And, that's, and that was their way of saying, you know what, this is me now. Whereas other artists struggle over something and will never finish it because it's, it never reaches the level of perfection in their own eyes. And it's, it's two approaches, you know. One approach is, you know what? This is as far as I can take it. This is me now. And the other is, is that you, are, you live a life of, in a, in a way, never forgiving yourself. Now, both, both sides have their advantages in, in a weird way in terms of self-improvement. One says, this is me now, which allows you to accept yourself. And that's very positive. That promotes 
positive mental health and spiritual balance. That's good. The downside to it is you may stop asking things of yourself. You might go, okay, I'm satisfied, this is me. So that would be the downside to it. On the other side, to say, you know, it hasn't reached perfection yet. The upside of that is that the person is always striving to improve, right? The downside is that they torture themselves. And they don't give themselves any rest. So one has to really find a balance between these two approaches. The ability to say, you know what, this is me right now. And also, I'm capable of achieving more. So a person has to really balance these two approaches. So, anyway, with that as an unexpectedly lengthy introduction, this is my answer to this question right now. <laughs> What's the question? The question is, everybody knows, whatever is going on in the Torah is going on in the world. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we've, we, we, the uh, Lubavitcher Hasidim talk about living with the times. And what does it mean to live with the times? That means that you're reading, you're keeping up with the weekly Parsha in the Torah, and you're, you're, you're seeing the world through the lens of that week's Parsha. And oftentimes, you can find very clearly what's going on in the world right in the Parsha itself. Um, Rabbi Wilson put it so beautifully one time, he said that the, the very fabric of reality is weaved from, that, from the letters in that week's Torah portion. In other words, you take the sequence of letters from that week's Parsha, and somehow Hashem just weaves reality out of that. So, so in a very, a very real way, what's going on in the Torah is really mamish what's going on in the world. Okay. Okay, that being the case, and we know that's the case, that's a real foundation for us, that being the case, the question is, why aren't we reading Parsha's Breshis which, which is the Genesis, which is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Or better translated, with beginnings, out of the fabric of beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth, because really every single moment is a new beginning, every single moment is a new opening. So why isn't it that we're reading Parsha's Breshis on Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is the day that Hashem created the world. It's actually the sixth day. It's the day Hashem created human beings, but nonetheless, that's why the world was created. So, so we celebrate the creation of the world on Rosh Hashanah. So it seems almost obvious that the Torah portion for Rosh Hashanah should be gracious. That's when we should begin the Torah, with the beginning of the world. And yet, that's not the case. It's not the case. We wait until all of the holidays are over. We don't read it on Rosh Hashanah, and we don't read it on the Shabbos between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Shabbos Shuvah, and we don't read it on Yom Kippur. If you want to say the finishing is on Yom Kippur, so okay, so then if we read it on Yom Kippur, I, I could give an, a, a reason why that makes a lot of sense also, and we'll, we might get back to that. We don't read it on Yom Kippur. We don't read it on Sukkot. We don't read it on Hoshana Rabbah. When do we read it? We read it on Simchas Torah. After all of the holidays, after the whole cycle of the holidays are completed, that's when we read Breshis. That's when we begin the Torah. Okay. So, so why is that? that? That seems strange. That seems strange. 
Okay, so we're going to give um, we're going to give some answers, and one answer that we're going to answer along the way. So let me just formally ask it as a question. Also, is what's the deal with Hoshana Rabbah? Hoshana Rabbah is the last day of Sukkot, right? And um, it doesn't get a lot of play, especially in the uh, you know in the, in, the, in the secular American press. You know, you know. 20 more shopping days till Hoshana Rabbah, you know. <laughs> you don't see a lot of those headlines. Um, and yet, Hoshana Rabbah is called the finishing of the entire cycle. Hoshana Rabbah, the great Hoshana, the great salvation. Hoshana Rabbah is coming as the, really the climax to Yom Kippur. It says it's written, the judgment is written on Rosh Hashanah. It's sealed on Yom Kippur. It's delivered on Hoshana Rabbah. So if that's the case, you know, why is Hoshana Rabbah so... What is the greatness of Hoshana Rabbah? That's the question. That's the question. And you'll see how these answers uh, connect very closely in a moment. Let me just... Um, we're going to answer the question or try to give an answer to the question, or I'm going to try to give an answer to the question. But um, let me just um, broaden it a little bit, um, so we understand the scope of this. If you think that just it's out of sync by Rosh Hashanah, in other words, here the Torah portion of the week is not correlating with, with the historical event. In other words, the historical event of Rosh Hashanah is the creation of human beings, and yet seemingly it's not, well, not seemingly, it is not correlating with the Torah portion of Breshis, of the beginning of the world. That's not unique to Rosh Hashanah. We have to understand that this is something that's more of a global thing throughout the year. And I can give you many examples, but two very fast ones are, we always read about leaving Egypt in the Torah approximately January, February time, every year. When aren't we reading about it? Pesach. Pesach comes around, you would think that, well, if what's going on in in the Torah is what's going on in the world, and we're entering Pesach, then, we, do you hear how it's the exact same question? Also at that time, around January, February, we read about um, the, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. When aren't we reading that? Shavuos. So again, there's, there's a lack of correlation throughout. Okay. So... By the way, the holiday readings, the holiday reading of Pesach does talk about leaving Egypt, and the holiday reading of Shavuos does talk about receiving the Torah. So, so I don't want to confuse you. However, it's not in sync with the, with the weekly cycle of the Torah portions. Hopefully I'm communicating. Hopefully that's clear. Okay. So, so we have to... The, the evidence is pretty solid in front of us. So we have to accept the fact that there are two cycles. There are two different cycles. There is the historic cycle, and there is the personal cycle, if you will. Okay? The historic cycle says that, you know something, on Pesach, as a special holiday thing, we'll, we'll go back to the Torah portion about reading how the Jews left Egypt, and that'll be that. Okay. But, but it's not necessarily what's, what's the Torah portion of the week. Okay, so then 
Now, all of a sudden, we've discovered something unique. And now we have to really zero in on this. And this will take us to the answers to our questions. We have this second cycle, which is this personal cycle, which is going on in our personal lives. Aha. Okay, so it's true. Historically, the world really was created on Rosh Hashanah. This is true. However, since we're reading about the creation of the world on Simchas Torah, it seems that the Torah is going by this personal cycle in our lives. All right. So the Torah, God has to be very, very personal with all of us. You know, we're saying it all of the time, and I can't repeat it enough. If God is just an idea in your life, in other words, if there's pencils and erasers and blackboards and football cards and God and glue and wood, if, if God is one thing on a list of things in the world, this is a problem. This is a problem. God encompasses and fills the entire world and then transcends the world. Everything we do, we're interacting with God. All we do, all day and all night, from the moment that we're born, to 120, to the moment we live in this world, and then, for the rest of time, on the soul level, all we're doing is interacting with God. It's the only thing going on in our lives, it's the only thing going on in the world. God is not an idea. Oh, yeah, that's right, God. See, one of the things, we're going to get to the personal cycle and everything in a moment, but it's just very important to make this point. One of the things that so many people think, it's such a fundamental misunderstanding about God in general and about Judaism and the mitzvot, and it runs so deep in terms of the popular consciousness, unfortunately is, okay, God, I, I got up, I, I went to shul even, I put on tefillin, I did what I have to do, now, now it's my time. Now I go back to my life, now I go back to my time. There's no such thing. That, that, that idea itself is, is completely illogical. There is no such thing as a secular moment. If God fills the entire universe, and all we're doing is interacting with God, there is no such thing as a secular moment. It doesn't exist. And that's a good thing. Because God loves us to pieces. Okay. So now, now let's get back to this idea. Why is it, let's re-ask the question. We understand there's this personal cycle to the Torah. And we understand that we're not beginning Parsha's Breshis, the beginning of the Torah, until Simcha's Torah, which is after Hoshana Rabbah, it's after Sukkot. Okay. So now, let's start to answer this question. What does it mean to bring the world back into creation? What does it mean that God is making the world new all over again? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, what is the world? What is the world composed of? So the Sefer Yetzirah breaks it down into three fundamental components. In other words, 
you can boil down all of reality and all of existence to these three categories. What are they? Time, space, and soul. Makom, Shana, Nefesh. Everything can be boiled down and distilled to these three categories. Okay? So let's think about this for a moment. One of the things that I find so compelling about this is that in secular science, in physics, they talk about the time-space continuum. You know, everything kind of boils down to that, the time-space continuum. What I think is so dramatic about the Torah is we say, yeah, you almost got it, but you left out something. The soul. Time, space, soul. It's one of the critical ingredients and you can't understand the fabric of creation unless you factor in the soul. The human being. What do we say? We say that Rosh Hashanah, which celebrates, marks the anniversary of of, of creation itself, is when the human being was created. We don't talk realistically about creation until the human being enters into the picture. Because that's the bottom line of creation. Has to be one of the essential elements of creation itself. Otherwise, why aren't we celebrating Rosh Hashanah on the 25th of Elul? That's when God made the world. No. The human being hasn't been created, so it hasn't been made yet. Okay. So now, now until those three elements come into full realization, the world itself, on this personal level of the Torah cycle, has not been made yet. The world has not been finished yet until these three elements have been finished. Okay? So now let's look at these three elements again. You'll see something very interesting. You'll see that there are two major cycles that take place from Rosh Hashanah time to the time that we begin the Torah anew. The first cycle is what we call Tshuva Mi'ira, Tshuva, return to God, that comes from the standpoint of Yira. Yira, you know, we have this phrase, Yira Shemayim. Someone, and often it's, it's translated as, as fear or awe. The truth is, is that both of them are, are accurate translations. We have the concept that there are two levels to Yira. We have lower Yira, which is fear of punishment, and then we have higher yira, which is this absolutely kind of mind-blowing understanding that I'm standing in the king's palace in front of God, and I want to be so careful. I want to keep his will so much because I don't want to disturb anything in the palace. Too many of us are walking around with the lower aspect of yira, which is just a fear of punishment. It's a very bad place to be in terms of your relationship with God if if, if that's the defining characteristic. Because you'll see in a moment that we've got a second cycle that we enter through, that we have to go through. This is the cycle from Sukkot, right? The whole whole idea from Sukkot to Hoshana Rabbah, which is the end of Sukkot. And Shmini Atzeris as well. This is tshuva 
Bhava. This is return to God from the standpoint of love. And again, you've got a higher love and you've got a lower love. The lower love is self-love. The higher love is a love which is encompassing and includes God and includes other things. So, what's a lower? What's an example of a lower love? So here's lower love. Hey, happy birthday! You know what? I'm taking you, um, taking you out to uh, for some Chinese food. But um, the person says, "But I don't like Chinese food." <laughs> Yeah, but I love Chinese food. <laughs> yeah, we're going to order the Kung Pao chicken. But um, I have a peanut allergy. Yeah, but I don't. And it's so good. <laughs> okay, so this is, this, is, this, is, this is lower love. This is, this, is, this is love which masquerades as love. And there is an element of love in it, but it's really self-love. It's really self-love. The higher love is a love which is, you know, unbounded. Like, you know, in Torah, the word for love is Ava, which is the gematria number 13, which is also the gematria of the word Echad, one. So, the higher love brings you to a oneness with creation, a oneness with God, a oneness with the entire world. That's the higher love. Now, the sages refer to this dynamic of Yira and Ava as the two wings of the dove. So in other words, just like a dove can't fly with one wing, it needs two wings, so we human beings need both of these aspects, Yira and Ava, in terms of having a healthy relationship with God. Now it's important to keep this in mind because you can sort of do a, um, you can do a, 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 a spiritual self-check on yourself, knowing this. What do I mean by that? If you feel like God is about to zap you at every moment, right? You're probably lacking some, some ava. Unless you're doing something really reprehensible, in which case stop doing what you think God is going to zap you for. <laughs> or at least take the first steps towards stopping it, you know? So then you know you're on the right path. Then if you've taken the first steps towards stopping it, and you're serious about that, and you still feel like you're going to get zapped, okay, then you can apply what I'm saying right now. You need more love in your life. You need to, to broaden your relationship with God on a, a, and, and, and allow yourself to feel loved. And, and there are ways to do that in terms of just contemplating creation and seeing just how much God does that He doesn't have to do. You know, one of the things that I personally go back to again and again is why are there schnauzers in the world? Why are there kumquats? Why is there the color fuchsia? Right? Like, God could have done a fantastic job of creating the world without all of these things. Right? No one would have missed them. No, I guarantee you, no one would have said, you know why I don't believe in God? Because there's no such thing as a kumquat. No one would have ever have said that. Right? Yet you see the bounty of God's creative giving. And it only is because God loves us. That bounty is, is an is a open expression of love for humanity. Um, anyway, so let's get back to these two cycles. Going through these two cycles, 
is absolutely essential for the fulfillment and the completion of the creation of the human soul. We have to go through this cycle of Yira, which is from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, and then we have to go through this cycle of Ava, which is Sukkot. Because Tshuva has to be understood in its deeper context. What does it mean to return to God? So the rabbis talk about this, and they say the following. They say, you see, tshuva doesn't mean that I'm just stopping what I'm doing wrong. Tshuva means that I've restored the relationship that exists. See, all of us know, for better or for worse, in our own personal lives, that you can kind of correct what you did wrong, but that doesn't mean that the relationship is restored. Full tshuva means that the relationship itself is restored. Now, you see that at the end of Sukkot. And you see that in a very, very beautiful way. Because the Sukkah itself is, is like a giant samach. If you can picture that letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the word Sukkah is spelled with the letter samach. That's the S sound, and it's a circle. So, I heard in the name of the Ari that that is a hug. Right? When you hug someone, you make a samach. That's literally, we're in God's hug. We're in His embrace. And Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach said, you know, this letter of Samach in, in the Ashrei prayer says, Somech noflim, that God uplifts the fallen. When you hug another person, when you personally hug another, another person, you make a Samach around them, and the body language, the soul language that you're communicating to them is that I'm not going to let you fall. But now let's look at it on a historical note. Everybody knows that the sukkah represents the Anani HaKavid, the clouds of glory that, refer, that, that return to the Jewish people. We were protected by this awesome cloud. And there were miraculous aspects of this cloud as we journeyed through the desert. It kept us shaded from the sun. All right, that's a pretty obvious level. It also was a bulletproof shield. Arrows that were fired at us bounced off the cloud. It also was underneath our feet. It protected us from snakes and scorpions in the desert. And are you ready for this? Because God loves us and he thinks of everything. And this is in the ancient sources. It was, a, it was also a dry cleaner. It's absolute, this is what the sources say. It cleaned our clothes for us. Okay? So, so these clouds were amazing, they were miraculous, and they went before us. Okay. So now, listen to this. When we worshipped the Eagle Hazav, the golden calf, now remember in the calendar, the Luchos were smashed on the 17th of Tammuz. That's approximately May, maybe June. That's, that's right there. The clouds of glory left us. Okay. When did they return? They returned on Sukkot. After the, after the Chet Ha'egel, the sin of the golden calf was forgiven on Yom Kippur, Moshe Rabbeinu came down with the second tablets, the sin was forgiven, and the clouds of glory returned. 
So, this was the restoration, the full restoration of the relationship between us and God. You see? So, this is the completion of the second cycle. Remember, we've got two cycles. The first cycle is Tshuva Me'ira. That's Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Then Tshuva Me'ava. That's, that's return to God out of love. That's the two wings of the dove. That's the restoration of the relationship with God. Not just the fixing of everything we're doing wrong. That's Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. But the restoration of the relationship when God returns the embrace back to us. When you get hugged back. Right? You know... You know, there are two types of hugs. I'm on great terms with you. I hug you, you hug me. Then we have a fight, and we repair the fight, and then I hug you and you hug me back. Ah, that second type of hug is a deeper hug. That's the hug of Sukkis. Okay? All right. We're almost there. We're not there yet, but we're almost there. So... Let me give you the answer now, and then we're going to go more deeply into it. So the answer is this. After I finished both cycles, or put another way, until I finish both cycles, my soul has not come into completion yet. It hasn't come into full creation yet. We said there's time, there's space, and there's soul. At the end of these two cycles... My soul has come into complete being again. And now the world can begin again. And when do I finish this? At the end of Sukkot. Ah. That's why Hoshana Rava is the finishing of the judgment. You see? It's written on Rosh Hashanah. It's sealed on Yom Kippur. It's delivered at the end of Sukkot and Hoshana Rabbah because this correlates with the return to God and the restoration of the relationship and the completion of this entire cycle. Until that happens, the judgment can't be delivered up in Shemayim. So now it makes sense. It's not this weird, abstract, historical, esoteric footnote that Hoshana Rabbah, it's a, what is that? That's when, uh, I don't get it. Well, now I get it. Now it makes perfect sense. That's the end of the second cycle. That's the end of the cycle of repairing my relationship. Now the judgment is complete. Now it can come down. Now my soul is complete. And what do we do as soon as that happens? Parshas Breshis. We begin the Torah again. Now the world, now all the critical elements of the world have come into formation. Now the world can begin again on a personal level. Is this clear? Now I'm ready. Now I'm ready. Until now I'm not. Now let me show you. You you might say to me something. You might say, well, wait a second. All right, I sort of follow. Soul hasn't come into full formation yet. Okay, but... so, So the Torah sort of waits for you on some level, which is in itself kind of a beautiful thought. But I want to show you something else, a point within this, which is that time also doesn't get created one, two, three. Okay? This is just kind of a bit of a side note, but it's, it's coming to show you the same idea. Time also 
takes a while to be completed. And I'll show you what I mean. The finishing of time as an element, as a construct, as a part of creation, doesn't finish up until Yom Kippur. It says something very interesting. Between the period of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, says this in the, in the Gomorrah, if a person, God forbid, experiences uh, Paranios, which means a bad, a, a bad thing happens to a person, God forbid. Between, if it happens between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Gomorrah says it's part of last year's account. See, I may have thought, well, Rosh Hashanah, the new year starts, right? And now, aye, the new year just started, and something terrible happened. Is this the year that I'm about to go into? Gomorrah says, no. No, no, no. That's part of last year's account. So you can see this on a couple of different levels. One level is, if God is opening up all the gates between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, like, can you imagine I say to you, you have, um, you have till Friday to get that assignment in. And then two days before on Wednesday, I hit you with a late fee. So wait a second, I thought I had till Friday. Yeah, I'm hitting you with a late fee. Well, that's not fair. Right? We have between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to fix up whatever we need to fix up. So how could it be if something bad happens that God is already charging us? For that year's judgment. It can't be. So that's why it has to be from the previous year. Because the new year hasn't started yet. On the deepest level, time itself hasn't kicked in yet. Okay, so there you see on another level how it's not just the element of soul that takes a while to become realized, but it's the element of time as well. So, so, okay. So now, you know, we were talking about it a little bit yesterday. I think it's a a very, very important concept for all of us. On the third day, it says God created um, the herbs of the field and and the trees and everything like this. But... um, but it's a, it's a little bit misleading. You have to read the commentaries to, to fully understand the pattern of creation. If you look in Rashi, and I think he's drawing from the Gomorrah, um, you see that the Garden of Eden either had no shrubbery in it or very little shrubbery. But it says that every single thing, when Adam was created, when the first person was made, was just below the surface. All those things that God created, all the shrubbery, all the beautiful trees, everything like this, all the grass, was just underneath the ground. And then Adam is created, and he prays, and a rain comes down, and rocketing out of the ground comes all these trees and shrubbery and beauty. And the Garden of Eden becomes the Garden of Eden that we know. So, so now we just said... At the end of Sukkot, just a few days ago, right before the world is created, really, in terms of beginning Breshis again, we just said the prayer for rain, right? That's what Adam prayed for. That's what brought all of this blessing that was just waiting there for us out of the ground. And I heard Reb Shlomo Karlbach say one time, he said, 
right before we started to say the prayer for rain, he said, all of the blessings that we've been davening for on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot, he says, and he held up his fingers like an inch apart, he says, they're this far from the ground. So we pray for rain, and then that's the final completion, so to speak. It's like, okay, now they can, they can land, so to speak. So we're all heading into the year right now. There's so many things that we prayed for. And it's like they're waiting for us. They're waiting for us. They're just underground. And we have to pray, and now we have to really get to work. You know, it's like there's so much momentum right now in the universe. There's so much momentum. We have to harness it, and like the, the temptation could be is, I, I just finished so much diving, it's so, it's so exhausting. Now I can finally rest. Oh, man. No, 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 no. Now, now kick it in gear. Now is when you kick it in gear. You know, Rabbi Nachman talks about a, um, a, uh, he, a, a story, you know, it's like a, a visualization, which is, to me, so powerful. He says, imagine a, a, a general is leading an army, and, and there's this heavily, this heavily guarded fortress, and they attack it, and they're able to scale the walls and overcome the enemy, and they get right to the headquarters, right where they want to go. And they see there's a spider web over the door. And they go, ah, and they turn around and they go home. Right? I mean, imagine what they were able to break through in order to get to that point. And then to see like a little bit of an obstacle and then to turn around. How could you do it? How could you do it? A, probably a much less compelling way of understanding this, but my, my own thought from another time is, I think all of us have had this experience, you know, you go to a, uh, a, 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 a sporting event, you know, or a concert or something like this, but, you know, like a, with, with a giant parking lot and, you know, thousands of cars and things like this. And I think some of us have forgotten where we parked our car. And then you just, oh, it's a nightmare. You can spend... You can spend anywhere from a half an hour, an hour or more, and you're just, it's just, uh, it's quite a, it's quite hellish in its own way. Um, or you finally get into your car, and then you know, yeah, another version of this is that you do a bumper-to-bumper thing, and it takes you another half an hour or 40 minutes to get out of the stadium or onto the freeway. You know that, I think we all know that, um, that feeling. So let's not do that with the new year. Okay? The concert's over. The event is over. Let's not spend the next three, four, five months looking for our car. Now, what was it that I had in mind when I was davening and crying my eyes out before God? I really don't remember. I must have been crying about something. I definitely remember crying. What was it that I wanted to accomplish? You know, that's the equivalent of looking for your car, you know? Or, waiting. Don't, don't, I, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this. I know I have. Where you're in one lane, which is bumper to bumper, and this just doesn't happen too often, but the next lane, there's no traffic whatsoever. Has that ever happened to you? I'll tell you a true story, and I, uh, I'll mention that this was at Harvard, only because I'm about to make fun of Harvard. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, I was going to a, a class one time, and it was, I think it started something like at 11, right? And it was maybe 
a minute to 11 when I got there, or maybe it was a minute after 11, I don't know. But the door was closed to the lecture hall, and there were two people standing in front of the door having a conversation. So, you know, oftentimes lectures will go, uh, you know, a few minutes over, whatever it is. So I stood in front of those two people, and then after a period of time, at about 10 after 11, there was a whole throng behind me, right? The whole hallway was filled. And then at some point, someone thought, well, this doesn't seem right. You know, this is way into class time already. And so someone opened up the door, and the professor was sitting there in an empty room. (laughs) No one, everyone assumed that everyone else knew what was going on, you know? But all you had to do was open up the door. I know, once I was driving at LAX, and it was bumper to bumper, it was crazy. But the world, it was the World Cup. There was some event in L.A. This was a bunch of years ago. And it was only bumper to bumper in this lane because it was leading toward the international terminal. Right? But one lane over, there was zero traffic. So the gates are open right now. The gates are open right now. If there's something that you've been wanting to do, and you're like, I, I've been wanting to do this, but it's contingent on this guy, and it's contingent on that guy, and I've got to track down this thing, and I, everything like that. Do yourself a favor. Do yourself a favor. Rethink the process. Talk to someone. Rethink the process. There might be a completely alternative route that you can take that you haven't considered, where there's no traffic whatsoever. It's sort of like there's a direct line to that person. Pick up the phone, call that person. Who knows? Maybe that person will say yes. Or that person will refer you to someone who can say yes. In other words, rethink your traffic patterns in your own life. Write down what it is that you actually want to do in concrete terms. And then figure out in concrete terms the fastest way to get there. You know, one of the biggest problems that people make on a mass level is they come to certain conclusions about what God is or what religion is or what Torah is when they're very young. When they're 8 years old or 7 years old or 12 years old or 14 years old or whatever it is. And they never rethink them again. They never rethink them again. They've reached a decision, if they were really to look at it, which is based on something they heard a conversation between two of their cousins, and they went, okay, I guess that's what it is. And they go through the rest of their life like that's what it is because they never really thought about it again. You will be amazed and incredibly gratified when you see what the Torah actually contains. You will be thrilled. You will absolutely be thrilled when you see the majesty and the beauty and the infinity that it contains. You know, there's a famous expression, I don't know if it's George Bernard Shaw, someone like that, which is, youth is wasted on the young. Right? Did you ever hear that? Youth is wasted on the young. In other words, The idea of being youth, you have a lot of energy and good health and everything like that. But you're young, so you don't know what to do with it. When you're older, yeah, that's when you need all the energy and all the passion and everything like that. You know, so it's wasted on on, on young people. A lot of the most, um, you know, did you ever hear this expression, you only have one opportunity to make a first impression? A lot of the most important areas of our life, especially God and the Torah and Judaism, things like this, you know, we, we allow our first impression, which is based on the immaturity and the lack of sophistication of our youth, 
to dictate how we feel for the rest of our lives. Don't be a prisoner to that. That's not, that shouldn't be the case. And, um, you know, if you have an encounter, you go, okay, well, I'll have an encounter, or, you know what, I did revisit it, you know, a short time ago, and it wasn't positive. Well, I can tell you that you have the wrong teacher. Because if you have the right teacher, there's, you know, it's sort of like someone saying, all right, you're telling me penicillin is really going to help me? Okay, I'll give penicillin a whirl. If you promise me penicillin is going to help me, I'll give penicillin a whirl. So you go to a doctor and the doctor says, okay, now open your pocket real wide and puts the penicillin in your pocket. (laughs) It's like weeks later. It didn't help. Okay, that doctor is a moron. I'm not saying that any teacher who doesn't reach you is, God forbid, that. God forbid. But it's very personal. There's a personal, personal, personal aspect to Torah. Super personal. And you have to try a few times. Look, the, the girl or the boy that you went out on your first date with, you didn't necessarily marry. It's pretty rare if that's the case, right? You have to go out a few times. So you, you, you try a few classes, you try a few teachers, you know? And you find someone who you connect with. And you will. And you got to pray. That's the other thing. Because this is beyond normal. This is functioning on a, a higher level. So it's a blessing when you find a teacher who you connect with. So you have to pray for that. And God will surely hear that prayer. He will surely hear that prayer and bless you. So we'll just wrap it up. And I'll just say, listen, Shem should bless all of us that we should take this tremendous downpouring of blessing that he's put into the world right now and we should take it and we should hold on to it and we should absolutely run with it. Now's not the time to sort of like get back into bed and go, I did my heavenly service and now I'm back to my time. This is now the time for us really to harness it and to take giant steps forward in our life and in terms of the completion of the world. Yeah.